The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we'll go ahead and get started, and uh, big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. And so for those who are new, we've been using Guy Armstrong's relatively new book as a complementary text to the talks that I've been giving for the last six months or so. It's called Emptiness, a Practical Guide for Meditators. And if you want, you can get yourself a copy at Moon Palace Books, which is very close to here. They're offering it 20% off for Common Ground folks. Just let them know. It's just south of Lake Street on Minnehaha Avenue, very close to here. And um, recently I read, reread actually, the chapter, on, chapter 11 on really... The, uh, looking at this ordinary, real experience of the reality of diversity, right? I mean, one thing we notice as a human being right now, right, because any moment will do, when I tune in to the experience, like I'm, I'm a sensitive creature here, I see, I hear, I think, I feel sensations, right? All these ways that the mind-body is sensitive, And one of the most obvious features of this is the diversity of experience. It's not like one thing. You know, a sight is not the same as a particular sound or a particular sensation or a particular thought or a movement of emotion. So there is this diversity of experiencing. It's very rich in its diversity. And then, and another way of looking at the same moment, not a different moment. I mean, of course, moments keep changing, but taking any moment, I could tune into the diversity of the present moment, the kind of great array of sounds and sensations and thoughts and emotions and sights that are flowing on and on and on. Or I could tune in to the empty nature of that diversity of experiencing, the diversity of sense objects or sense experiences. Like that it's just this being known and it's empty of anything else. So it's really important that we don't get confused by ways we talk about our experience or our life because it's true not only in terms of our practice, if I open to the moment from this point of view, Reality, the present moment, appears one way. If I look open to the present moment from another, looking at another facet, it's going to feel or look differently. And this is a little disconcerting. You know, we sort of have this simplistic idea, just tell me what's real. Just tell me the way it is. We want to, because we want to use experience to reinforce the solidity, the permanence, of me, of my life, of who I am. And that's sort of emblematic of the basic problem where we're using our life, we're using experience to confirm delusion. You know, that I exist as an entity apart from everything else. And so we use everything in life. We massage it to make it reaffirm this sense of me or mine sense of being apart or separate. 
And then what the Buddha realized, I mean, he, the Buddha saw that because like a human, any human being, he saw that same pattern in his own mind. And, and because he was careful and had a lot of, I guess you could say, spiritual intelligence, he started to correlate that pattern, that habit, with suffering, with being tight. You know, the need for the mind to establish itself as a thing, as a permanent something apart from everything else, was clearly always correlated with the sense of a somebody being tight, being afraid, being needy, being burdened by life, right? So he got curious, like hopefully we're all getting curious about our minds. Okay, if relating in that way where I use experience, like I'm at common ground, but then I, in a sense, the mind grips that idea, takes a hold of that idea to sort of reinforce the sense of a me, a permanent me. Now I'm at Kamagon. Before I was, you know, and, and to solidify the sense of a permanent me. Yeah, things are changing, but it's always me having my experience. And always seeing how that on, on the sort of surface makes me feel real, makes me feel maybe a little even safe, but it's always stressful, it's always heavy. And then it just begs the question, well, what's the alternative? And I think this is really what that chapter is about, how we use experience not to solidify a sense of self, but we use the process of experiencing, of knowing, of being aware to illuminate the way to release, the very release of that same tension, that same holding, that same fear-based, greed-based, delusion-based holding. Because looking at the present moment, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking, these are the elements, the, the basic senses, the basic ways the mind is sensitive. I can look at those six ways that the mind knows the world through the five senses and knowing the activity of the mind. These are the only six things our mind knows, right? Do do you know anything beyond the five physical senses and mental activity being known? And to begin to notice that these six things are always moving. That's why sometimes in Buddhism we call this the mind stream. Because even though these first five, in a sense, are the body, the seeing, the hearing, the tasting, the touching, and the smelling, right? these five physical senses, but they're known in the mind, aren't they? And they flow. We can tune into the flow. It's always one side after another side. It's not the same site moment to moment even though it might be similar, you know, I'm looking at Lynn, but every moment it's a different, right? It's a different sight. That's right. Now, <laughs> she's making rabbit ears or whatever that is. <laughs> but things keep changing. Sounds keep changing. Thoughts keep changing. Emotions keep changing. Sensations. It's a flow, a mind stream. Whatever 
particular strand of sensitivity that the mind is tuning into, is aware of, it's flowing, flowing, flowing. And as, in that sense, it's really ungraspable. It's not ground that the sort of deluded, egoic sense of self is looking for something solid, something that reaffirms the sense of a permanent, stable me apart from everything else. So we can either, I mean, it kind of makes sense. We can use life in this diluted way that on the surface seems to give us what we're looking for, but in but instead really traps us in sort of a hell realm. Right? We may feel safe, but we're in hell. We may feel imprisoned, but at least it's me in prison. <laughs> you know, it's me with a tough life, a difficult life, or me with my problems. Or we can use life, use this existence, this what are we really? I mean, we're just a bunch of sensitivity. And what we're sensitive to, what the mind, the heart is sensitive to, is flowing, 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 a flowing that never ceases, never stops. So we can release, or we can notice that there doesn't need to be anything other than that flow being known. That flow being known. We don't need to assert, construct, project a something that owns that flow, that is that flow, that's apart from that flow, we can abandon that. The last couple of weeks, I, I talked about karma, um, and Guy Armstrong writes about that. I think it's chapter 9, like the intersection of the Buddha's teachings on emptiness, that any moment of experiencing is empty of anything other than this being known from a subjective point of view, right? We're always talking, in terms of the Buddhist teachings, we're always talking about the subjective point of view. The Buddha, in a funny way, not funny, but you know, in an, in an important way, isn't interested in what we might call the objective point of view or the sort of absolute truth point of view. He's really interested in this experience of being a human being, the subjective, direct, immediate experience of being a human being, and the fact that a lot of the times, from the subjective point of view, we feel burdened, we feel tight, heavy, painful, and that possibility of the releasing of that burden, that heaviness, that tightness. That's what he was interested in. The reality of release, the unshakable release of the heart, the very common experience of feeling burdened by life, trapped, heavy in our experience as a human being, and the real possibility of release. So he wasn't trying to come up with this really clever or profound philosophical view. He was really interested in this subjective problem of suffering. Suffering, stress, is a subjective experience. And the question is, subjectively, what do we do about suffering? And even if we think about suffering sort of in grand scales, like people don't have enough food or people that have been continually oppressed because 
of the color of their skin or their gender or whatever it might be, all of that very real suffering comes down to that particular mind or that particular heart and the stress or the weight or the fear or the whatever that is experienced as a burden. So it always comes down to subjective experience, collectively, right? And so that's the place to really look for the causes and for the, the way it is released. Not to sort of, in an abstract way, create theories about suffering and release, but to look at subjective experience. We have a mind that is sensitive. We turn that sensitivity back toward the mind. We get interested in the heart and the mind itself. What is the experience of being burdened, being heavy, being afraid, being tight, being needy, being lonely, being feeling oppressed? What ways of being, ways of understanding, ways of relating, what supports this burdened feeling, this experience of stress? What supports the release? So this first step, like that, to to address that question, the Buddha has all these teachings on karma. Karma is exactly coming from that point of view. There's a human being that has taken the first steps, like they've got enough space in their life, they're not completely overwhelmed by basic survival, that they're able to reflect on their experience as a human being and feeling stress and release at times and happiness and unhappiness. And I'm just curious about that experience. And so they're starting to track it. And then in, from Buddhist, in, with Buddhist terms, we'd say that human being is waking up to the law of karma, right? That some ways that I relate to the experience of being a human being are skillful. And some ways of relating to my present moment experience are unskillful. Skillful means I'm relating in a way that alleviates the burden, that alleviates the stress. And unskillful means I'm relating to the present moment in ways that amplify, increase the stress and heaviness. Right? So that's skillful and unskillful is, has this very direct definition. What kind of seeds am I planting right now in the mind stream based on how the mind is relating to what's happening, relating to experience? Am I relating in a way that is stressful and increases you know, the probability of stress down the road? Or am I relating in a way that has the flavor of release and ease and opening and leads to that opening and releasing down the road? So this is, in a way, the first stage of spiritual practice where a human being, I mean, initially, most human beings, probably even today, you know, are just so overwhelmed by the stressors in their lives, just basic survival issues, that it's not so easy to be reflective, like to have the space and time to go, what the heck's going on here? Because the externals are so big, seem so relevant, they don't, can't do the more subtle work at looking how 
their attitude, the way their mind is constructing meaning, kind of stories, the way the mind relates, that that's relevant, right? They're just too busy running away from the, the next tiger or dealing with a relationship or a child that's sick or whatever it might be. Now, of course, you can be somewhat reflective even when terrible, difficult, challenging things are going on, but it's not ideal to learn how to be reflective in those really challenging moments. If you have some momentum in your practice and then some really challenging circumstances arise, yeah, it's definitely possible to continue to practice even in the midst of the worst or most exciting, pleasant experience. So if you're fortunate, if we're fortunate, then we take this first stage and we begin to discern the difference between skillful ways of relating to the flow of experience and unskillful ways. I mean, in the short way to sum up that insight into karma is when the mind is attached, then I'm planting seeds of suffering. And when the mind is relating to the present moment with non-attachment, I'm setting in motion the release. But remember that non-attachment is not the same as non-engagement. Because that's its own kind of attachment. Like not wanting to engage would be being attached to the idea that engagement is complicated. Or engagement is challenging. So I'm going to check out. That's still attachment. So the only way a mind, a person realizes real non-attachment is in the experience of engagement. If you think you're going to realize non-attachment through some kind of sitting on the couch, some version, your particular version of you know, disengagement on the couch, letting life go by, that's a version or fear or something like that, right? That's its own particular flavor of attachment. Life is just too messy to get involved with. It's just too complicated. You never win. I give up. All of those are different versions, different expressions of attachment or grasping. We're grasping at not having to deal with karma. So the thing about karma, this awakening to the lawfulness of karma, which the short definition is it matters how we pay attention. It matters how we relate to the present moment. It matters. However you relate to the present moment, that's how you affect the mind stream, the flow of this and that, the endless this becoming the next moment, this moment becoming the next moment. How you relate, it matters. That's, what, that's all karma means. It matters how you relate. So thinking that it doesn't matter is one way to relate, and there are karmic implications for thinking it doesn't matter. Right? Things get tight if you think that. Because you've got to keep pretending that it doesn't matter. And that's stressful. So as anybody pays attention, then something just dawns on the mind. First thing that dawns on the mind, it matters. And then the mind, as it continues to pay attention, clarifies how it matters. Oh, when I relate with uh, a sense of having enough or being content, 
it has one effect on how things unfold. If I reflect with greed, not having enough, wanting more, that puts a different spin or sets in motion a different kind of unfolding. If I relate justifying harm, then that sets in motion something. If I relate uh, with a real commitment to non-harming, that sets something else in motion. If I'm gentle and tender and kind, that sets something in motion. If I'm mean-spirited, don't care, that sets something in motion. So that's how that karma means is we're starting to discern what really matters. And the image the Buddha uses at this point in practice, it's kind of an interesting image. You might have heard this. It's in the middle link discourses, number 19, if, for those of you who like to read the Buddha's discourses. But uh, the image is, well, first what the Buddha says is, he's describing his own practice. And he says, one of the first things I realized is just what I've been saying. It really matters. And he thought, well, what happens if I divide my thoughts up into what's skillful and what's unskillful and pay attention? And he just organized skillful and unskillful in the three ways. Skillful is thoughts of renunciation, the joy of renunciation, contentment, having enough, um, harmlessness, like this commitment to non-harming, compassion would be a, saying it in the positive, and the absence of ill will, which you could call kindness or just goodwill. Right? And then what's unskillful, so just the opposites of those. Greed is the opposite of renunciation. Ill will, the opposite of kindness or goodwill. And you know, willing to harm, willing to be aggressive instead of a commitment to non-harming. So what happens if I, the Buddha asked, like if I just divided my thoughts up and then, because he noticed that, you know, when those skillful intentions were there, the mind stream unfolded in a really released, light, skillful way. And when those other unskillful intentions were there, the mind unfolded in the direction of hell. Things got tight. Things didn't work very well. People didn't like them. You know, I mean, the things that are just common sense when we think about it and we look at our own life and observe cause and effect. And then the image the Buddha used was at the time just before harvest and you're a cow herder, you got a group of cows, herd of cows, and you have to navigate these rice fields where maybe you've seen pictures of the rice paddies in Asia and they've got these very thin pathways between the fields and you've got you know your 20 30 cows and your stick and these farmers if they see your cows walking in their rice paddies a week or so before they harvest they're going to beat you up i mean they're or steal or take your money because you've ruined their crops so you're constantly tapping the cows and doing all your tricks to keep them on the thin path so they're not so the buddha uses this image as a example of vigilance so once our mind understands the reality of karma how i'm how the mind is relating really matters and i see i've discerned like what qualities of mind are skillful what qualities are unskillful 
and they're both, all of them are active, then I'm really vigilant. Like, it's a lot of work. I mean, this is sort of, you might think, well, that's kind of stressful. But it's less stressful than getting beaten up by the farmer because your cows are all over the fields, right? So you're trying to be skillful and you're exerting yourself to be skillful. Why? Because it matters. That's a human being that is integrating the reality of karma. And then the Buddha talks about a later stage, because you've been really vigilant, because you've been constantly discerning the difference between what thoughts, what intentions are skillful, what intentions are unskillful, you get to the place where it's no longer harvest time, right? The crops have been harvested, and you're sitting now that farmers want your cows in their fields to poop, right? Because it fertilizes the fields. So you can sit under the shade tree, relaxed, and he says something like the way they, it's written, all you need to know is that the cows are there. You don't need to be you know, tapping them this way and that way. You just need to know they're there, they're okay. Because that person knows that they're just wholesome intentions in the mind. And this is really the maturing. It's like there are really two parts of practice. One is very linear, where we're kind of growing up, maturing as a human being. First, trying to pretend it doesn't matter what we do. And then that doesn't work. So eventually, we, we grudgingly realize, you know what? I don't want to, but I have to take responsibility for my attitudes and the way I'm framing things and the way I'm relating because it matters. And we're kind of reborn, you know, wherever that happened for you. I remember as a seventh grader, I have some stories way back when I was in seventh grade in the 60s, and this sort of comes online for me, like just this truth of karma that it really matters, like just feeling the peer pressure to be a certain way and then this sort of conscience in my mind, like, yeah, if I do that, what does that set in motion? Like, what kind of future? And like, being frightened by, like, oh, I don't want to go in that direction. I mean, it was kind of primitive, but you kind of get the picture. And probably everybody in this room had their own moments when they sort of woke up to this primitive level that I don't want to, but I have to be responsible for what I'm thinking, what I'm intending the way I'm relating, because it sets stuff in motion. So to not want to be responsible doesn't exempt me from what it sets in motion, right? So the only sane thing to do, as troublesome as it is to take responsibility for our mind, the only sane thing to do is to do our best to learn how to navigate this territory, like to get better at recognizing what's skillful, what's unskillful, how to abandon the unskillful, how to promote and strengthen the skillful, because it matters. In the same way that you know we try to earn a living or we try to find a mate or we try to do all the other things you try to do in life, this is just that same survival mechanism just on a more refined level where the thought it doesn't matter no longer holds up for us. It does matter how we relate. It does matter what my mind is doing. Like I give this example sometimes about, you know, I've been married to my partner, Wynne Fricke, who teaches here. 
She's the co-founder of Common Ground. You know, since well, we've lived together since '91 and have been married now 25 years. And uh, and I've noticed over the years that if I allow a certain thought to come up in my mind, like let's say I'm upset about something and I'm chewing on it, and I'm chewing it, and I let my mind chew on it, well, it sets something in motion. Even if I know it's not it's not skillful to bring it up because it's really my fault or it's not her fault or something. But if I let my mind proliferate on it, you know, that kind of complaining, blaming mind, well, I've created some karma. In other words, right here in my mind, in my heart, I've set something in motion. And even though I don't really want to do it in public with her, you know, I've already planted the seeds because I've allowed my mind to proliferate in a negative way, in an unskillful way. It's already building a force, some momentum. So whenever my awareness, the wisdom is weak and I'm interacting with her, I'll just blurt out something I know better, know that I shouldn't be saying. But because I've allowed that karmic act to happen in the mind, why did I allow it? Because there was delusion there that thought, it doesn't matter for me to be in this complaining mode, this blaming mode, this, you know, whatever deluded, oh, poor me, or, you know, whatever mode our mind can get in. Because my mind justified acting out ill will, then ill will builds a head of steam. And it's just going to look for a little crack, and then it will express itself. Even if we know better. Have you noticed? This happens not just to me, right? I don't think so. Because <laughs> it's not a mistake. Like when we act out in a way that's unskillful, that's not a mistake in that moment. That's the uh, culmination of many, many little leakages where the wisdom wasn't there to catch that the mind was watering an unskillful pattern. And then... That's just the last moment of a long stream of having just been a little deluded, a little superficial, a little not vigilant, and then it acts out. So the initial stage of spiritual practice is really starting to own karma. Now, how does this relate to emptiness? Because this sounds like a heavy self-trip. This doesn't sound like emptiness. It sounds like there's somebody who really wants to be skillful and it's hard work, right? That's what it sounds like. That's what karma sounds like. Except the more we do the work of karma, really own it, really engage it, really take responsibility that how my mind is relating, the qualities of the mind that's relating in this moment matter because they directly, immediately make an impression on the mind that's going to be there in the next moment. It's not like Santa Claus or God is keeping track of whether we're skillful or unskillful. Every moment of being skillful or unskillful, it leaves an oppression on the mind that is conditioning the next moment of mind. One mind moment conditioning the next. So it doesn't matter if no one catches us being unskillful. The impression is laid down right in the mind stream, moment by moment by moment. Now, the moment, the, the more that the mind observes in this way, that it matters and does its best to promote what's skillful, undermine, abandon what's unskillful, then the more spacious the mind gets because it's less confused, less 
pushed around by making mistakes. It's just more competent in this world of karma where attitudes and qualities of mind matter. And because the mind is less afflicted by negative emotions, more balanced, more skillful, it begins to realize an even more skillful way to be skillful. So initially, when we're trying to be skillful, we're like a really intense person who doesn't want to suffer, right? And we're, we're vigilant, but we're tight in our vigilance. And the more we do our work, the more we realize that I can be even more vigilant being relaxed. That really not wanting to make a mistake is a kind of greed. It's already a little bit of a mistake, right? So the attention to karma, the deeper, the deepening respect of karma, that how I'm relating matters, actually leads to letting go, letting go. And you know what it turns out in the end? The most effective way to be skillful is to completely let go of being the one who needs to be skillful. Because the mind projecting a somebody who's going to suffer if I'm not skillful and who will benefit if I am skillful gets in the way. that Those ideas of being the one who's going to receive the fruit of our actions get in the way of really being intimate in the moment. This is so interesting that emptiness is realized as the natural fruit of engaging and integrating and being respectful of karma. It's not a a way around, a way of avoiding karma like it like this especially these days in this me too time when a lot of us are waking up more, hopefully, and hopefully as a society, especially around our sexual activity and how much suffering and just the roots of patriarchy and you know all the patterns of oppression, not just in terms of gender and sex, but race, class. And it's just so easy for these patterns embedded in society to keep repeating themselves. And it can feel so oppressive to want to take responsibility, to like care and want to make the world better. But the thing is, the showing up, it's a way to realize freedom, like to give ourselves to non-harming, to give ourselves to justice, like to give ourselves to being a good parent, even though we have no idea how to do that, or a good citizen. Or like in terms of environmental change, global warming. These intense commitments, you know, like really keeping the cows out of the rice paddies. It seems intense, but the more we stick with it, the more we realize we have to drop the sense of self in order to really show up to the world we're living in. It's precisely because of the enormity of karma that we're willing to let go of being the one who wants to be skillful. So I think of it this way, and then I'll open it up for conversation. So there's a part of spiritual life that's pretty linear. 
And this is like uh, sometimes in Buddhism it's called the path of purification, where there's a human being who's starting to pay attention, realizes that it matters, in a very linear way gets wiser about like what qualities of mind set emotion, stress, cause problems, what attitudes, qualities of mind are more wholesome, set good things in motion, and the person just gets smarter, wiser in that way. And there's a kind of gradual, like life starts to work better because I, I'm relating more with generosity and less with stinginess, more with kindness, less with meanness, right? And just generally, over time, life tends to work a little bit better when we operate with those wholesome qualities. And that's one aspect of spiritual life. And then there is a parallel development in spiritual life. And this is especially highlighted in Buddhism. And you could call this the process of insight or the insight into emptiness. But what it is, and it's also gradual, it's the mind that is aware of this path of purification, of getting more respectful of karma, more competent, more skillful with karma, but realizing that that isn't self. Yeah, there is a being, me, we say in conventional terms, who's realizing it matters (laughs) how I'm relating right now, but there's this process of awakening that sees that that vigilance and that commitment to karma, that commitment to being kind and not harming and taking responsibility, that that's nature, not self. And that awakening of emptiness really supports the process of purification, becoming a better person. But they're semi-independent, these two things, even though they support each other. Like sometimes people have a lot of understanding of emptiness, like things are impersonal, but their process of paying attention to karma has some real holes. Like This always surprises people when somebody who's evidently a great teacher does something really stupid, you know, and starts sleeping with somebody they shouldn't be sleeping with, or, you know, lying to somebody, or, you know, there are lots of these kinds of stories where somebody seems to have some real insight, some real wisdom, a well-known spiritual teacher, and then does something really stupid. And we go, my God, how can that happen? Well, they've had some insight, but the process of purification of the personality being clearer about what's skillful and unskillful has some real shadows, some unfinished you know, purification. right? So the two things work hand in hand, but it, we, don't, we don't really know like, where we are in this process. So when this gets way ahead, we're really careful, but it feels like a real burden, right? And then when the wisdom piece is really ahead, it's like, feels really light, nothing matters, but we might be doing stupid things in life and paying the consequences for them. But we have a light attitude about the consequences. Oh, this person doesn't want to see me again because I said something stupid to them. I shouldn't have said that. Well, just stuff happening, causes and conditions, right? You, you hear this is sort of a shadow in Buddhist circles where people have, they've have some book knowledge of emptiness and maybe even some insight into the impersonal nature, but they overestimate where they are. They think because things are empty, impersonal, 
They don't have to attend to karma. That it matters what you say, matters how you think, matters what qualities are there in your mind. Even though it, in a sense, doesn't refer back to anybody, on a conventional level, it's a cause for suffering. Why wouldn't we want to pay attention to that? Why wouldn't we want to take responsibility? Only a sense of self would avoid the work of karma. So it's really the dance between these two parallel processes that allow for really healthy spiritual development. Attention to karma, our way of relating the qualities of mind matter, and seeing that it's all impersonal. The perfecting the personality is impersonal. It's a beautiful thing, but it doesn't refer back to anybody. Skillful actions, but nobody who's skillful. Unskillful actions, but nobody is unskillful. But just because nobody's unskillful doesn't mean that unskillful actions don't have painful consequences. Right? You could have a fully enlightened person, and if they do something unskillful, like you know, step in front of a truck, that truck's going to run them over because they were you know, looking at their cell phone. So karma exists even if the lawfulness of karma is playing out in a world without any centers, without any fixed centers. But the lawfulness of karma, the Buddha never sort of said, oh yeah, someone's beyond karma. A lot of people think that, you know, when your insight deepens and you're sort of free of karma. No, it's the deepening of insight that allows the heart or the mind to totally own, totally engage the world of karma. Because there's nobody who's burdened by karma, like feels burdened by having to be a good person or to be willing to look deeply at the roots of suffering and the roots of injustice. For a normal person, it feels a little overwhelming to take responsibility for all the suffering in our lives, all the suffering around us. But the more we wake up, we're happy to take responsibility for everything until we die. Because there's nobody who seems burdened by the duties that come with being a human being, living in culture, living with other beings. It's only a self-centered point of view that wants to be done with the work of life. An enlightened person means that there's, that there's no part of the mind identifying with the work of life. So the work of life becomes enlivening to do the next thing, as tricky or difficult or subtle or complicated as it might be. And we know that experience already because there are some moments where we're operating from a more empty point of view, and it's just like engagement feels very enlivening doing what's next, right? And there are other times, even doing simple things just feel so hard, so like, oh, because there's a strong sense of self with a fixed story, I don't want to do this, or this isn't what my life was supposed to be about. You know, why doesn't my parent just die? I just don't want to, you know, how long is it going to take? I mean, I'm just saying this out loud because this is a very common thing, whether it's your parent or your cat that's getting old and 
peeing in the wrong places or, you know, whatever it might be. We just want these problems to be done. Because we think that release comes when we're done with the work of life. Instead of release comes when we realize we can totally own the work of life without it landing anywhere. You see, it's a whole different, it's a real paradigm shift. One is this idea of transcendence, like where we're going to be transcend into some heavenly realm where we won't have any duties or responsibilities. And that's called idealism (laughs) or utopian thinking. It's delusion, right? And awakening is using our life, using the messiness, using the complications, owning the karma, like it matters how I relate. And as we give ourselves to that responsibility, how I show up, what I say, how I think matters, realizing that that attention to detail, that commitment to not harming is empty of self. See, that's where we realize emptiness in the engagement, in the, in the wholehearted engagement, we realize that that engagement itself is nature. It's not me or mine. That's just a habit of thinking, I have to do that. I mean, this is like I mentioned, we see this a lot in these places in life that have been challenging, like raising kids, where there are some moments it's so enlivening and free, and in some moments where it's just a slog. Same with intimate, committed relationships, right? Sometimes it's a real slog to kind of keep the relationship going, keep it relatively healthy. And other times it's just like pure grace and ease and, you know, wonderful. But anyway, I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from other folks in the room. Share your wisdom, what you've learned from your life, or ask questions. We'd like to begin. We have about 10 minutes or so. What comes to mind? This intersection between, oh yeah, please. Thank you. Yeah, I'm Kathy. I've been sitting here really sorting through some things. And what I'm seeing as a struggle for myself right now is being with people who maybe have ill will towards, I'm not, I mean, my life is okay, <laughs> but I mean, people that may have ill will towards me because of their causes and conditions in their life and and in really trying how to, how to own the, own myself, not myself, own. Own how you relate. How I relate, right, exactly. And then I hear two different sides of that. One is that person is really a bad person, so defend yourself. And the other one is, no, everybody's okay. And so you're just thinking things in a bad, in a unhelpful or unskillful way. So, but, but I. But you could still defend yourself even knowing that they're just doing the best they can. Yeah. And I don't need to hate them. But that doesn't exclude you taking care of yourself. Right, yeah. And I guess that's the part that I'm really working on is how do I take care, how to take care of myself in the middle of that? Because yeah. I think that just comes up as part of life for a lot of people. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of how we learn that is we make mistakes. 
where we don't take care of ourselves and we get exhausted or feel burnt out, and then we realize that we're burnt out. And then if we're skillful in that moment, we connect the dots. Well, how was the mind relating? What was the mind missing? What was the mind not seeing, not acknowledging, and not responding to so that it doesn't happen again and again and again? So we can learn just as much when we're relating in an unskillful way as we can when we're relating in a skillful way. It's just a question if that discerning part of the mind, that's the mind. You know, wisdom is that part of the mind that connects the dots in terms of causality, like how it is, the conditional unfolding. How did the mind get here? Exhausted, burdened, heavy, wanting to give up. Because our mind is really good at sort of tracing back a kind of, if, we're, if we develop this integrity, the self-honesty, because it's lawful. It's not like rocket science. We can really see, oh yeah, and start making the correlation. What was the mind doing? Oh, it wasn't listening to that quiet voice that's saying, honey, I'm hurting. You know, It was imposing some fixed idea. Oh, that's their stuff. You don't need to be concerned about it. Well, yeah, but you're hurting. You know, maybe you need to say something, or maybe you need to step away. Right? But you can do that, we can do that without hating the person, without because it's not really a person there. It's just a series of causes and conditions. Right? There's that famous line, if you knew the secret histories of your enemies, I forget how it goes, but something like they wouldn't be your enemies. Because you see that they couldn't be different than they are given that given their histories. Yeah. Thanks, Kathy. Who would like to speak next? Yeah, all the way in the back first. Hi. Um, so I have a lot of difficulty being vigilant about getting things done. Um, often I put things off and I think that it doesn't matter. And I don't know really how to get over that, but I do wish I had a mindset where I could use karma to make sure I'm doing things that I need to do because it's just overwhelming and ignoring all of my issues all the time, homework or cleaning or with dishes or whatever. It's, it's just weighing down on me and I feel very overwhelmed. Yeah. I mean, part of uh, this respect for karma is understanding that the pain, like when you walk in the house and see the dishes in the sink, are you going to let pain in that moment, for just a moment, be your teacher? Because that's how the pattern changes, is we let that image and the shame, humiliation, remorse, or whatever, however you describe, whatever that force is, you let it make an impression on the heart. You let it in. You feel what is there to feel. Because then the only reason we do things that aren't skillful is there's not enough depth and breadth of awareness to let... See, karma's always there anyway. Like the effects of our actions are there. But if there's not the stability of awareness, the breadth and depth of awareness, then the information of karma isn't going to make its impression, isn't going to have its effect. So everything that's needed to change habits 
that information that's needed to change our habits that are unskillful, it's already there. What's missing is the stability of awareness, the breadth and depth of awareness that is willing to let life in and make and have its effect, it make its impression. Same thing if you're saying something, like if you have a habit of saying something or relating to a friend or whatever, a partner, in a way that digs the hole deep. Like, how come I keep doing that? Well, because in some moments, the mind doesn't have that depth and breadth of awareness. Because the information is there, like putting the dish in the sink and and thinking I'll do it again, or, I mean, I'll do it later, or something, you know, whatever the mind does in that moment. There's something to be seen right in that moment. And part of what can be seen in that moment is the wisdom that correlates leaving the cup in the sink, which seems like a small thing, with the pain of coming home after a busy day and seeing all the dishes there. We gotta, the mind has to connect the dots. It's this simple thing that leads to this bigger thing, right? What is <laughs> All of the hellish places in our life there are all these relatively small cumulative steps that have led to these painful places. And then we just get in these grooves. And this is true, you know, and when you look at these wars and other sort of patterns of injustice in the world, they begin in really small ways. And then they just build on themselves. Because the more they've got momentum, the more we don't want to look at them clearly. Because it's painful to look at it clearly. But remember, pain is information. Pain isn't bad. We think, this is like a, a diluted idea, we think pain is bad. But pain is just information. And pleasure is just information. And the only question is, are we going to let it in and let it have make its impact that it needs to make. Because if we're not letting it in, then in a way our life is adrift. We're sort of we're disconnecting from the law of karma. And then things can get really dangerous. I mean, like the world we live in, we see how suffering begets suffering. And and when we start to respect karma, suffering begets learning and change and living more skillfully. So is suffering going to lead to more suffering or is suffering going to lead to learning and change? And that's really the choice you know, that we're talking about here. Thanks for your comments. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take a one or two breaths together. And remember, it really is okay to let go of the words. Appreciating the silence. And appreciating the lineage of women and men and other folks who did their practice before us. And that we are now the grateful recipients of this wisdom stream. 
And may we let it in, may it have an impact in our lives, may we also become part of the causes and conditions for this wisdom, for this compassion, these skillful ways of living to continue on for the next generations. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.